The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Have you ever wondered why you make certain decisions? Or where your morality comes from? Philosopher of mind and founder of neurophilosophy, Patricia Churchland, takes us on a journey into the brain, the nature and data of morality, and the origins of non-conscious decision-making. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice or visit iai.tv for hundreds more articles, videos, and podcasts from the world's leading thinkers. Greetings, and I'm pleased to say that I'm really delighted to be here um, and to have an opportunity to talk to you about what I call neural philosophy. <clears throat> and that is a subject matter that is kind of at the interface between the philosophical questions about the nature of the mind and how we think and decide how it is that we're conscious, and on the other hand, developments in neuroscience. One of the most remarkable things, I think, in neuroscience in the last 25 years or so have been the technological developments that have allowed us to investigate the brain in much finer and much more profound ways than were possible uh, ever before. And I'm going to start actually by talking about consciousness, partly because that is an area that has been considered so mysterious that no one could ever make any progress on it. And yet, and yet we see progress in neuroscience of a very distinct and very important kind. Now, with regard to the question about the nature of consciousness, roughly speaking, there are two approaches. One is to develop a great grand exotic theory about the nature of the phenomenon itself. And it is typically kind of very rich in metaphor, uh, but very data poor. The other approach, and, and this is one that I favor, is to try to make progress on a very specific question about some aspect of the nature of conscious experience. Now, we might want to begin with a definition of consciousness, but as with any phenomenon whose science is not yet really well understood, we can't give a, a precise explicit definition. But what we can do is make certain kinds of contrasts between conscious states 
and other states and ask the question, what's the difference in the brain? And in particular, what I'm going to look at today are two questions. What is the difference in the brain between someone who is about to have an epileptic seizure and has dissociative phenomena, meaning they have experiences which they don't consider to be theirs? And what's the difference in the brain when we're under general anesthesia and not? And in both cases, we've learned a lot. Now we have in anesthesia a very practical problem. We want during surgical procedures to reduce pain or abolish pain. If you're having knee surgery, for example, you do not want uh, to experience the pain of having that surgery accomplished. So this is really not about zombies or about what is conceivable by somebody in some possible fancy wor fantasy world. This is about the kinds of procedures that people like you and I undergo, about root canals, appendectomies, kidney stones, amputations, gunshot removal. It's about pain and the loss of consciousness. Interestingly, by and large, the great grand theories of the nature of consciousness, such as that everything in the world, including protons, cow pies, and fungus are conscious, have essentially nothing to say about how we reduce pain during surgery. Surgery is not just a sort of sweet casual affair. It does involve removal of structures and is often extremely painful. And even something like a root canal can be very, very painful if you have no anesthesia. Now, cocaine in the 1880s was the first drug that was used in dental and eye surgery to reduce pain. And by about 1905, it was replaced by procaine, or as we might call it, novocaine. And the novocaine, since I'm sure we've all been to the dentist, is injected right next to the tooth that is going to be worked on. Now, how does procaine work? Is it spooky? Is it weird? Does it involve uh, prayer? No. What it does is it operates on the neurons, the nerves themselves, and it changes the structure of the neuron so that the neuron cannot spike and hence cannot send a signal to the brain. And so amazingly, you feel numb and you do not feel pain that you would otherwise feel. I want now to turn to general anesthesia because that's a place where for many years people used particular um, general anesthesias such as ether, which was the first use was in the 19th century. I mean, just think about that. Before that time, people had their legs removed, they had tumors removed without it benefit of anesthesia. They were maybe given whiskey, uh, but that didn't help very much. So what do we know about propofol, which is the, the general anesthetic, which is most widely used? And we have two very important domains of research. One is research on humans and the other is on non-human primates. Emory Brown at Mass General 
is a, a, gen, a, a an anesthesiologist. And he's been very concerned, both for practical and theoretical reasons, about how it is that propofol actually does the job that it does. And he has run large-scale experiments on healthy humans who were volunteers to see if you administer propofol very slowly over time and then reduce it and, and uh, stop the propofol very slowly over time, what precisely happens in the brain? Using Emory Brown's results, um, people in Earl Miller's lab realized that what we had to do was not only put electrodes on the scalp of humans undergoing propofol anesthesia, but we wanted to put those electrodes right into the brain itself to precisely find out whether specific cells are involved and if they are, how they change. And so this work is very recent, the work on non-human primates. Basically the story is that it is entirely consistent with the research on humans. So what does it actually do? How does propofol render us unconscious? How is it that we feel nothing, hear nothing, see nothing when we are under the influence of propofol? The fast answer is that there is a large decrease in the firing rate of neurons in two structures, the cortex and in the thalamus. Now, it turns out that there's a more fine-grained answer, um, but First of all, you might say, well, how does it change the firing rate of, um, of neurons in these areas? And the answer is that it interacts with an inhibitory transmitter, namely GABA, to increase the functionality of GABA. It enhances GABA. So let's go into a little more detail about how propofol renders us unconscious. The answer is kind of multifactorial because it involves large regions of the brain. And so it's not just in a tiny area that there is a reduction of spiking rate, but it looks like in the conscious state, you have a kind of coordination of responses to input from externally as well as internal input involving motivation and hunger and thirst. You have large coordinated responses over wide areas. And that with propofol, it's as though the coordination drops out of the picture that we see uh, small regions that are, are, are coordinated within themselves, but there's a lack of coherence across the brain. The results of the electrodes put in four specific regions of cortex on non-human primates. Prefrontal cortex area 8A, which is also frontal, posterior parietal cortex, which is more towards the back, superior temporal gyrus, which is sort of middle rear. As propofol is introduced, the firing rate drops. And when there is loss of consciousness, you see the firing rate go way, way down. 
And in B, what we're looking at is ROC, recovery of consciousness. So you see that the firing rates are very low, propofol is turned off, and recovery begins and firing rate increases. Now, this is really quite a stunning discovery, but it's not exactly interpretable as though the brain itself all shuts down. In actual fact, what happens is there is a lot of activity still in the brain, but it looks just very different from the kind of activity when you are conscious. What's interesting about this part of the slide is that it shows that both in the awake state and in the unconscious state, when neurons are firing between about eight and 25 hertz, there is a difference in the front and the rear. So at 25 hertz, when you're awake, the frontal neurons have a sort of low power, but the rear neurons have a quite high power. They have a low firing rate, all of them, but the power is different. When you are unconscious, notice how that is exactly reversed. So that the frontal regions, now they're firing at a very low rate, but they have a high power, whereas the, the rear regions have a much lower power. So it's not a uniform effect, and that too is a very striking thing. Now, without going into any more detail, I mean, the main point I want to make here is that when I hear hypotheses to the effect that everything is conscious, including rocks and cow pies and fungus, I think, well, what does that tell me if I need to know something about anesthesia, if I need to know about pain? And the answer is it tells me nothing. When I talk to just regular ordinary folks about these rather extravagant hypotheses, they say, but my daughter has tremendously debilitating depression. Isn't that a brain phenomenon? Aren't these feelings of hopelessness that she has, aren't those part of the brain? What does it, how does it help to tell me that protons uh, are conscious? And the answer is it doesn't help at all. I want to move on from um, talking about propofol um, to talking also about another anesthetic, which is ketamine. But there's a very interesting story to be told here about ketamine and uh, about consciousness. The focus of interest right here is this structure in the middle the thalamus, which receives input from all over uh, the brain, but including uh, very ancient structures in the brainstem. And it turns out that it's kind of the heart and soul, if I may speak loosely, of the brain, the thalamus is. And very centrally within the thalamus, there's, so there's regions for vision, for hearing, for touch, but right within the center is a structure called the intralaminar nuclei or the central thalamus. There was a patient of Nicholas Schiff's in New York who had been in coma for a number of years. He was a firefighter and he had an accident 
Um, and he was in coma. He was able to sit in a chair, but he was totally unresponsive. The brain, however, did not appear to have any major lesions or injuries. When um, someone gave him a drug called Ambien, he suddenly woke up. And it turned out what the Ambien had done, or at least this is the hypothesis, was to affect the central nucleus of the thalamus. And thereafter, a question arose whether the central thalamus and stimulation of the central thalamus could reverse the effects of propofol or ketamine. And it turns out that in actual fact, uh, it can. Moreover, it turns out that, and I, I mentioned the dissociative phenomena earlier. There is a patient in, at Stanford who um, has for many years suffered very debilitating epileptic seizures. And one of the effects that he has of his seizures it, uh, is in, in the, the period just before the seizure begins, it's as though some parts of his experience are belong to someone else and some parts belong to him. In other words, it's a dissociative experience. In uh, Carl Dyseroth's lab, this was studied in mice and, and I don't have time to tell you exactly how it was done, but basically it was a very, very clever way to determine whether mice under these conditions of ketamine might have dissociative feelings because some human subjects under ketamine had also said that they experienced dissociative feelings. And the region and the physiology of this epileptic patient is very similar to the region that shows this very specific effect in mice when they have dissociative feelings under, under ketamine. And in humans, this area is uh, posterior medial cortex. It's called retrosplenial um, in, in mice. But just to give you a feeling for how, how much more specific this is than just saying consciousness is a fundamental feature of the universe. This involves very specific neurons in very specific layers in cortex. Layer five neurons are the ones that when stimulated in this subject, if you stimulate them electrically, he has exactly the kind of dissociative feelings that he has during uh, the aura preceding an epileptic seizure. And now I want to say um, a little bit about non-conscious function as a result of learning skills. So this is in a way a kind of counterbalance and yet it's very consistent with the research on anesthesia. So one of the remarkable developments I think since the 1990s has been the realization that this very ancient mechanism for reinforcement learning is in mammals and birds that have cortex, it is actually a very, very sophisticated mechanism for acquiring very complicated, intelligent, smart skills. 
it also uh, acquires very fairly simple connections as well but it can do much more than what uh, people used to think about reinforcement learning. And, oh, well, you know, it's a little, uh, a little conditioning, uh, but you know, you have to have really smart stuff to do this. And it turns out that the fundamental mechanisms of reinforcement learning are quite understandable and elaborated once you have uh, cortex. The major work here has been done by Reed Montague, Peter Diane, Terry Sainofsky, and many others who uh, followed um, once the, the, the fundamental discovery was actually made. So in the context of decision-making and of consciousness, we do have this remarkable thing that we call self-control. And it's often very robust. It's often very non-conscious in its execution. It involves skills that can be technical, social, wide-ranging life skills, skills about how to handle your finances, how to handle matters concerning health. It involves such things as maintaining a goal despite distractions or despite other, other impulses. It involves suppressing impulses that are inconsistent with maintaining a goal, delaying gratification. It involves adhering to training. These are all things that we know at a very common sense level. And what we're learning now is that uh, maintaining a goal often, you have to be conscious to do it, but the mechanisms whereby it is achieved are largely non-conscious. And so there are many things that uh, we learn as skills. Sometimes we learn them just through experience of having things work out well or having other things work out badly. We also learn through imitation. We learn through approval and disapproval from parents and siblings and teachers. We learn through stories and songs and simply watching others. And this is one of the most important and most intelligent things um, that we actually do. And it's not unique to human. And of course, it's not surprising that mammals, especially mammals who are predators or even mammals who are prey and have to be very, very still in order not to be seen, how reinforcement learning so that they can have strong, robust self-control uh, is really important. Sometimes, of course, um, we give in to impulse and uh, sometimes the negative feedback is sufficient that that impulse gets squashed uh, and we don't do it again. The key structures are the ventral tegmental area and it projects to the nucleus accumbens and um, secretes dopamine. And those neurons then activate neurons in the nucleus accumbens where if the action produced good consequences, uh, endocannabinoids are released, it feels pleasurable. So it's not the dopamine per se that feels pleasurable, it's the interaction with the neurons in the nucleus accumbens. And 
other neurons, if the outcome of the action was negative and painful, other neurons will respond and indicate that uh, this action is not a good action um, to do again. In other words, it will give it negative valuation. And those are neurons that are mostly involved um, with serotonin. So you can see in the case of serotonin, there is widespread projection, not only within the cortex, but in these more ancient structures uh, within the, the brainstem. In these older structures, there are a lot of interactions between the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, which is the dopamine releasing area, the nucleus accumbens, which releases endocannabinoids and opioids, but many other structures as well. And that's why the skill learning gets more and more and more complex, the more complex uh, the nature of the brain uh, as, as a whole. But it is remarkable that even uh, rats, for example, as well as, as foxes and, and wolves, uh, can display really quite impressive self-control. And of course, what we're interested in also is where those mechanisms differ in individuals who really lack self-control and how self-control through behavioral techniques, for example, might be modified so that individuals have more control over their specific impulses. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.